Sometimes a story is just too big to tell all at once. But that's the nice thing about podcasts. They give you plenty of room to stretch out. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This is part two of a series we created in 2015 on the African-American experience with the performance of Shakespeare. In the other podcast episode, we looked at the extraordinary history of African-Americans who performed Shakespeare well before the Civil War, and a wealth of stories about African-American performances of and perspectives on Shakespeare in the last 60 years or so. And to be honest, that's an approach to the topic that's fairly common. But you might notice it leaves out something big. Close to a century, from after the Civil War through the Jim Crow era of segregation to the 1940s and 50s. A lot of that territory has been explored far less often. And of course, that makes it all the more interesting. When we first started looking at this time period, we discovered some wonderfully rich material, and we brought together two of the handful of scholars who have delved into it. One is Ayanna Thompson, professor of English and director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Arizona State University. The other is Marvin McAllister, associate professor of theater at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We call this podcast our own voice with our own tongues. Marvin and Ayana were interviewed by Rebecca Shear. So Marvin McAllister, I know that after the Civil War and for a few years before the Jim Crow laws came into force, there was a period when African-Americans in the South not only voted, but they even held political positions, including two U.S. senators. Now, we know Shakespeare was popular in America in the 19th century, and it made me wonder whether there were black Shakespeare troops during this period. I mean, I gather the answer is is murky at best for those years, no? Well, I can't say definitely there weren't, but I just know that the majority of uh, black performers post-1860, post-Civil War, were engaged in some type of connection to a black-faced minstrel troupe. Now, not all of them performed in blackface. Some of them might have been opera singers or other ethnic impersonators, but they were associated mostly with uh, some type of colored musical blackface traveling troupe. And Ayana, after Jim Crow came into full force, could African-Americans go to the theater as audience members? No. Um, And we, in fact, know at the National Theater in D.C. that um, black audience members could go into the theater before the Civil War because we have a note in the Washington Intelligencer about the creation of a third tier of seating for, and this is the quote, for um, properly conducted persons of color. So we know in the mid-19th century that persons of color could go to the theater in D.C., and then sometime right after the Civil War, that ceased to exist. Marvin, as we get into the 20th century, we find more African-American companies performing, um, including some that do Shakespeare. Um, Tell us what you know about, for instance, the Ethiopian art players. Well, the Ethiopian art players was an interesting uh, experiment out of Chicago. It was kind of in response to the Red Summer, the race riots in Chicago in 1919. 
and some well-meaning uh, black and white Chicagoans decided that they wanted to do a project that brought together white artists and black artists, but also would ultimately integrate uh, theater going in Chicago. And their idea was to uh, bring in a, a guy named Raymond O'Neill, who was a director out in Cleveland at um, one of the art theaters there, and they put together a, a repertoire of plays, including some Shakespeare, including one original Negro drama, including some Greek drama. And uh, they decided that they would put this together, debut it in Chicago, and then actually tour it to D.C. and actually end up on Broadway. And um, the, a cornerstone of their production was Shakespeare. Let's move to D.C. now. Marvin, I know you've been working on a history of dramatics at Howard University. That's the historically black college here in the district. So I want to spend some time talking about Howard because I understand they did a lot of Shakespeare in the early part of the 20th century. But was Howard the only black university that was doing Shakespeare or were others doing it too? Oh, no. Um, Many different universities, from Atlanta University to Spelman to Morgan State. A lot of uh, HBCUs would do Shakespeare as a kind of graduation ceremony production. And so they would, um, you know, start rehearsing right before graduation, and they would basically treat their families and other people who were involved with the institution to this elaborate Shakespearean production. And so um, that was one specific time that they would do Shakespeare, but also um, a, a professor like Benjamin Brawley, who would later work at Howard University in the English department, he produced Shakespeare all over North Carolina, all throughout Georgia at the various HBCUs where he was a a professor. And what did he do at Howard? Oh, at Howard, he actually did the first Shakespeare at Howard in uh, 1911, The Merry Wives of Windsor, a play that's not done very often. But uh, yeah, he debuted, that was actually the first Shakespearean production at Howard, and he did it with the uh, Howard College Dramatic Club. And they actually performed it at the uh, Howard Theater in D.C. What about reviews of these plays? Is that something we could find today? Oh, yeah. Um, So the Howard uh, University papers um, had student reviewers who would, um, you know, review the production. And uh, one student reviewer in particular felt that it was rather ambitious for the students, an amateur group of students, to do the production. Uh, This particular student reviewer wasn't particularly uh, overwhelmed or impressed by the production, but the reviewer was just happy that they were doing this kind of thing because students at Howard and the Howard College Dramatic Club and the administrators and the professors all saw Shakespeare and Shakespearean production as a way to sort of become citizens of the world, as a way to sort of show their uh, aspirational desires to be citizens of the world. And so for the student reviewer and other students on campus, it was a status thing. It was a, it was a, it was a matter of cultural elevation to do Shakespeare. And so they were just impressed that the students uh, decided to do Shakespeare. Well, moving outside of the university setting, what about black community theater? For instance, the Washington Dramatic Club. Can you talk about them? Yes. Yeah, so um, Anna Julia Cooper, famous educator, uh, feminist, uh, she started the Washington um, Dramatic Club, and one of her uh, main directors was a guy named Nathaniel Guy, and they did a really nice production of uh, Merchant of Venice, also that debuted at the uh, Howard Theater. And when I say the Howard Theater, I don't mean a theater on Howard's campus. It was a separate producing house called the Howard Theater. And um, the Howard College Dramatic Club and the Washington uh, Dramatic Club were kind of committed to the same things. They were committed to doing classical productions by known authors. And in both instances, it was about sort of this cultural elevation, this sort of society elite, D.C. colored elite society thing. And so when they debuted a show, either the Washington uh, Dramatic Club or the Howard College Dramatic Club at the Howard Theater, the uh, local paper, the uh, the Washington Bee, uh, edited by uh, W. Calvin Chase, they would 
market and advertise these events as society events. You know, not popular entertainment, not your regular old run-of-the-mill entertainment, but this is elite society events that you want to go to. Ayana, um, at this point, there's something I want to talk with you about. There was a forum held in 1981 at the Folger that taught you a great deal about the history of segregation in the theater in Washington, and also the impact of that segregation on theater performance at Howard. Um, First, tell us about this forum at the Folger. So the forum was held in 1981, and um, the speakers were all uh, professors who had been involved with the theater department at Howard and who had deep knowledge of um, the theater scene in D.C. in the 1930s and 40s. So it featured Ann Cook-Reed, Sterling Brown, Owen Donson, and Todd Duncan, who all spoke um, very frankly about their experiences in D.C. theater. We actually have a clip from that that forum. I'm going to play it here. I came to Howard to establish an academic department, an educational department which was to train undergraduates in the basics of the theater arts in general. My philosophy was that the theater belonged to the arts, and every art is built on its craft. Regardless of one's genius, one learns his craft. That was Dr. Ann Cook. Um, Ayana, tell us what you learned from her from this forum. Uh, Didn't she end up, for instance, taking a group of Howard students to perform in Europe? I know there's a story there. Yeah, she tells an amazing story about the fact that um, because the National Theater was closed, uh, her students had no place to go see theater. But they happened to be putting on an Ibsen play and a a dignitary was in town and wanted to see theater, but there was no theater to see. So someone brought him to the Howard Theater to see this play. And he was so impressed that he said, oh, you know, you should, we should get you to Europe. And she said, okay, thinking, you know, it was just a, a compliment that wouldn't be followed through. But sure enough, they got to tour Norway, Sweden, Germany for three months. It's pretty remarkable for uh, an amateur group of black American actors. There was an important story that was told at this forum that relates to black audiences at the National Theater, which you've mentioned. Um, And it has to do with Todd Duncan. He was the original Porgy and Porgy and Bess. Tell us that story. Yes. So um, we know, in, as I said, in the 1830s that a seating section was reserved for persons of color. And somehow that dissipated and was done away with after um, the Civil War and that blacks couldn't go to the theater. There were special moments when um, blacks would be allowed in. So certain performances, people could advocate for getting them in. And Todd Duncan decided that he was going to fight to get his Porgy and Bess um, with an integrated audience. And so I shall ask you to quickly go back to 1936, and uh, you are told that no Negroes will be allowed to come to see you. So what did you decide to do? To tuck your tail and say, I'll go? No, you didn't. And so he sort of organized a potential strike. He threatened a strike and got a lot of backers. Eleanor Roosevelt, Ralph Bunch, Mary Bethune, Mordecai Johnson, Secretary Ickes. Those are some of the people. And... um, So the first offer that the National made was that on Wednesday and Saturday afternoons that um, Negroes could attend in the upper We were told, I was told at least, that uh, Negroes could come and sit up there on Wednesday afternoon matinee and Saturday matinee. 
and they knew that would please me. And I said, no, that won't do. The second offer he got was that, okay, during every performance, Negroes could attend if they sat in the upper tier, and he turned that down. Well, Actors' Equity got in touch with Duncan and threatened to fine him with a $10,000 fine if he didn't accept this offer. They also said that he would not be allowed to act on any stage if he didn't for two years if he didn't accept the offer, but he held out because he knew this was the right thing to do. So finally, one week before the opening of Porgy and Bess at the National, meanwhile, this is after the Broadway debut, so this is the hot ticket. Everyone wants to see it. The National finally caved in and said that the theater could be fully integrated. So Duncan, worrying that they weren't going to fall through with this, bought up $200 worth of tickets and that were all over the place, so not just in the upper tiers, and gave them out to all of his black friends in D.C. to ensure that it was going to be a fully integrated audience, and it was. And what about the show that came in after Porgy and Bess? The show that came in after was... And something happened somewhere, but Negroes were not allowed to buy any tickets for the next performance. It's an insidious disease. In 1947, when Actors' Equity was really putting pressure on the National to integrate, the National decided to close instead of integrate. It said, no, we would rather not have live theater in the nation's capital than integrate our audiences. Wow. Well, talking about the mid-1930s, around that time, there are two important African-American Shakespeare productions I want you to talk about, Ayanna. The first, many of our listeners have no doubt heard about the voodoo Macbeth. And the other is Paul Robeson's performance of Othello. Um, let's talk first with first about Macbeth. Tell us about that production. So this is during the Depression, and the Works Progress Administration was set up to ensure that people could work. And so under um, under that, the federal federal theater project was set up. And Orson Welles, a very young white entrepreneurial uh, director, um, who was 24 years old. Somehow, and the story has been, you know, changed over time, um, but somehow came up with the idea that he wanted to stage Macbeth with an all-black cast. Oh, on and out! There is no flying head, no tearing here. I get to be weary of the sun, and with the estate of the world, we're now undone. Bring the alarm bell! And it was staged at the Lafayette Theater in Harlem. It opened on um, in April 1936, and it is reported that over 10,000 people showed up for opening night. It had an all-black cast. It featured a large drumming section um, that was sort of Haitian-influenced drumming, um, but was led by an African drummer from Sierra Leone. Whose arms are hired to bear the stairs? If thou be a slain and with no stroke of mine, my wife and children's ghost will haunt this still. Please, Danny! Um, it was so popular that it then moved to Broadway for a while and then toured nationally. Not only that, from my understanding, it, it was a very big part of the Harlem Renaissance. Absolutely. I mean, right? You have, yes. you have these intellectuals writing letters about it. You have stories in the black press. Yes. Carl Van Vechten famously said, I finally know what, um, what Harlem wants. It's Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> Macduff was from his mother's womb, untimely ripped. <laughs> Accursed be the tongue that tells me so. And be these juggling fiends no more believed. Hell King! Hell King! The 
West hand the usurper's cursed head. The time is free. All hail Malcolm. Peace. The charms wound up. And what about the black press? Well, what did they say about it? Uh, it was the hottest ticket. I mean, everyone loved it. The black intelligentsia was there. Um, Langston Hughes um, famously had mixed feelings about it, um, wrote a poem called Note on Commercial Theater, where he said, you've done stolen my blues and gone. You put me in Macbeth and all kinds of other plays. And so um, there were some mixed feelings that it was an appropriation of black culture. But the audiences showed up. And then Robeson's Othello, that was in 1944. Let's talk about that. Well, actually, the first um, his first showing of Othello was in 1930 in London. And, um, and it re- he received very mixed reviews then. Um, but he came back to the U.S. in 1942 and did a reprisal of the role in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then, came, then it was invited to um, Broadway in 1943-44. And he was starring opposite Uta Hagen. My very noble and approved good master. But I have taken away this old man's daughter. It is most true. True, I have married her. The very head in front of my offending had this extent, no more. After the early um, mixed reviews in 1930, the 42, 43, 44 were, I mean, rave reviews. People wrote things like, I've never experienced a truer Othello. I'm finally seeing the play for the first time when you see it performed by a black actor. Cassio, I love thee, but nevermore be officer of mine. My gentle love, be not raised up. I'll make thee an example. What's the matter? All's well now, sweeting. Come away to bed. Iago, look with care about the town and silence those whom this vile brawl distracted. Come, Desdemona. Tis the soldier's life to have their balmy slumbers waked with strife. And the production had a white Desdemona, which I think is amazing, considering what a big deal it was when, you know, 1967, you've got Nancy Sinatra kissing Sammy Davis Jr. on yeah. TV. And that was 35 years later. So, Or, I mean, the, the opposite side is that in D.C. you couldn't sit next to someone right, in the theater. Right. right. So, no, it's a huge deal. Um, and um, Robeson said that he was very nervous doing this, that he, you know, tried in some ways to make it not be a sexy role because he wanted people not to freak out about um, seeing him opposite Uta Hagen in this love affair. Here's my husband. And so much duty as my mother showed to you, preferring you before her father... So much I challenge that I may profess you to the moor. So he didn't take it lightly either. And I think he thought of this as part of his, um, you know, kind of political awakening. This is the moment where he's also entering in the Communist Party. And I think he was really thinking about equality for all, for all workers, for all people of color. And this performance, I think, was a strategic turning point in his career. Marvin, let's go back to you now uh, and go back to Shakespeare at, at Howard University. Toni Morrison plays a role in this story, doesn't she? When did she come to Howard? Well, she came to Howard in the late uh, 1940s as a, a student. Um, 
I think she actually started out as a theater major. And so um, she uh, comes into the picture because she played a role in a production of Richard III, which was directed by Owen Dotson and starred a professor at the University James Butcher as Richard. And at the, na- at the time, her name was Toni Wofford. And so in the uh, production, she played Queen Elizabeth. And the uh, neat thing about this particular production, though, so they did the production around like 1950, 1951. But in June of 1951, they got the opportunity to do scenes from the production on TV. WMAL-TV, Channel 7 in D.C., uh, had this uh, talent show called The Washington Showcase. And so it was like a nine-minute show. And on the showcase, um, different contestants could compete uh, in acting scenes, and they could win cash prizes. They could be voted best actor or actress. And they could also, the ultimate prize was to win a Hollywood screen test. And so what Howard did was they took a couple scenes from their production of Richard III, I think like scene Act 1, Scene 2, and Act 4, Scene 4, uh, the scenes that featured the royal women. And they brought in... Um, Tony Wofford, or Tony Morrison as Queen Elizabeth, um, Mary Nelson, and another actress named uh, Juanita Tolson. Now, I don't know if they won the contest, if they were voted Best Actress or Actor or that kind of thing, but um, it was a really uh, interesting uh, experience for the students to film their uh, Shakespearean scenes. And the scenes were, of course, broadcast uh, June 25, 1951 at 10.30 on uh, local television. Now, it's about this time, um, Ayana, that Joseph Papp is starting the New York Shakespeare Festival. And it's there that African-American actors perform Shakespeare in integrated casts for the first time. You've learned some things about Pap that are important to our story. Um, so let's talk about his time with the Actors Lab in California and how that set the stage for him to allow black performers in New York City. Um, so after the war, Pap moved to Los Angeles and got involved with the Actors Lab, who were very instrumental in advocating for integration of the theaters. And he, in fact, um, wrote a little piece in one of the Los Angeles papers talking about, like, hey, we need to fight for um, desegregation in all of our theaters if art is going to thrive. And then when he moved to New York, he put out a call to actors who said, you know, if you want to act, come. And he was surprised that some black actors showed up and he thought, well, you know, let's do it. Let's just see what happens. And from there, the New York Shakespeare Festival took off. Um, so in the beginning, his theory really was that it should be colorblind. But he, his ideas about race and performance morphed over the years. And he, I think, ended up being very interested in color consciousness and thinking about, you know, you don't have to ignore the race of the actor on the stage, that you should actually think about the way that we can make Shakespeare American by noticing all of the variety of colors and ethnicities on our stages. Well, this actually leads right really nicely to the next question, which I wanted to pose to Marvin, talking about colorblind casting, where basically you cast someone and you don't pay any attention to their race. In another segment we did on this subject, we talked about August Wilson's opposition to colorblind casting in the 1980s. You know, how he thought African-American performers should forget about doing Shakespeare and just do plays written by black playwrights. Considering that the only black Shakespeare characters are Aaron the Moor and Othello, I guess, I'm wondering, Marvin, whether Wilson's sentiment cropped up only in the 1980s, or did we see this strain cropping up in earlier years as well? Um, actually, it, it, it crops up earlier, but, you know, in a, in a, in a different sort of way. Um, Thomas Montgomery Gregory, who was um, 
the creator of a dramatic arts program within the English department at Howard, he learned some lessons from um, folk theater pioneers like uh, Frederick Koch at um, North University of North Carolina and also a uh, drama innovator, uh, George Baker, out at Harvard. He uh, learned that the real way for students, young students, artists to grow was to uh, develop dramas that were rooted in their own uh, specific soil. So Thomas Montgomery Gregory felt that uh, Negro artists, playwrights, and actors and directors needed to generate material by them and about them, but not necessarily just by them, like it could have a Negro folk play by a white writer like Eugene O'Neill, and that would further these artists as, as performers, but also as citizens of the world. And so uh, Thomas Montgomery Gregory started moving in that direction of we need Negro plays, but then it was picked up by Elaine Locke, famous Howard philosophy professor, and also advisor to the Howard Players, which was started in 1919. And he actually took time to write an article which was published in Crisis Magazine in 1922 where he had just come back from a trip to Stratford-upon-Avon and he was talking about Shakespeare in this article. And he made the case that uh, Shakespeare is great for piercing the human heart with emotion, but he felt that Shakespeare was limited in terms of what Shakespeare could do with ideas. In particular, what he felt was that Negro artists needed ideas to generate understanding and respect from the rest of the world so they could truly be respected. And so he felt that those ideas were lacking in Shakespeare. And so he chastised actually the Howard Players and the Howard Dramatic Arts Program for focusing too much on white writers and maybe classical theater and Shakespeare. And he challenged them to find their own art rooted in their own native Negro soil. And so those were two examples of a similar sentiment to August Wilson in the 1910s and 1920s. But then contrary to what August Wilson would say, we have people like, what, Beanie Butcher, and Cook, who we heard from before, Owen Dodson. They felt like you should be able to do any kind of character, right? Right. And that idea of being uh, uh, doing world theater goes back to Ben Brawley, then Thomas Montgomery Gregory, and Cook, Owen Dodson, and, and Butcher all continue that. The idea here is that you're training young black actors to be citizens of the world who can do anything. Now, they can do the stereotypical black roles that they might be offered in the 1930s. They can do that. But if you want to take that challenge, like, you know, say a Joseph Papp, and hire them to do Shakespeare, they better be ready to do that, too. And so that was the kind of philosophy for the training at Howard. Going back to the 1910s, you should be able to do anything. But then what about the 60s when we had sort of the black power movement? How did that affect things? Oh, wow. So um, when you started to have the student protests in 1964 on campus, you had students coming in and shutting down classes, shutting down productions, and making the clear demand that we want a black curriculum, we want black pay plays, we want professors like Owen Dodson and Glenda Dickinson when she was there, and James Butcher, we want you all to stop doing Shakespeare, stop doing Arthur Miller, we want you to do Leroy Jones slash Baraka, we want you to do Ed Bullins, we want you to do stuff that is directly about us. Now, Howard had been doing that all the time. I mean, they debuted a couple shows by James Baldwin, but the black militants on campus were like, we just want that. For them, doing Shakespeare was sort of diluting the purpose of what they felt a black university should be. It should be doing Baldwin, Baraka, Bullens, that kind of work exclusively. Ayana, as we close, there's something you wrote that I, I want to read here, and I want to ask you both about it. You were writing about whether or not it was acceptable to do a blackface Othello in the 21st century, and this is what you wrote. The construction of Shakespeare, a man who wrote plays in the 16th and 17th centuries for white men who performed in blackface and cross-dressed, 
As the universal bard, the poet who speaks for all ages exemplifies a cultural desire for historical unity, cohesion, and organization. This, of course, is just simply a fantasy. So considering that, what is there to be learned with regard to race in America by looking at African-American Shakespeare performance, particularly during this period that we've been talking about when segregation was, was so severe? I think it's a mixed story, right? I mean, so there's um, some standout performances and um, model Negroes like <laughs> Paul Robeson um, who get to be the stars. Um, but then there's a lot of stories of people who only ever get to play Othello or the black women who only ever get to play ser servant roles. So I think even today, it's still a mixed bag. Many black actors debate whether or not the pinnacle of their career should be playing Othello or why they don't get to play Hamlet. So we like Shakespeare to be universal and for everyone, and I think it should be for everyone, but that's not always the way it's practiced. Marvin, what do you think? I think, uh, going along with that, I think that the, the, the good sort of litmus test is taking, say, Othello in the roles of Iago and Othello. And you look at actors who have played both Iago and Othello, somebody like Andre Brower. And um, what, when, when, when you hear them talk about that, like Ayana was alluding to, there's that feeling that um, I don't want to be limited by a role in some ways that's already limited. Othello is a stage African creation of William Shakespeare. That role has all of its pretty language. It has all of its different dynamics to it. But that role compared to a play or a role like Iago is very different. And I think a lot of young actors like Andre Brower, well, used to be young actors like Andre Brower, <laughs> they salivate with the idea of having the elasticity of a Hamlet, of an Iago, of even say in Titus Andronicus a Titus, you know? And I think that in some ways they realize there's certain limitations and breaks on a character like Othello. And young actors don't want to be limited like that. And you know what's fascinating is the fact that Hugh Corshi, who's a, a really uh, well-respected, classically trained black actor, yes. gave a famous mm -hmm. speech uh, called Second Thoughts About Othello in which he said, mm -hmm. you know what, this is a role that's not worth playing. It's so racist in its construction that I don't want to play it anymore. I don't want to be limited by that narrative. And he gave that speech in 1998, and it was just announced that he's playing Othello next year, yeah. 2015. So there you go. Even when you know the limitations, sometimes mm -hmm. you can get trapped in them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Ayana Thompson is a professor of English and the director of the Arizona Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Arizona State University. Dr. Marvin McAllister is an associate professor of theater at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. They were interviewed by Rebecca Shear. Our Own Voices with Our Own Tongues was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We have a number of people to thank for their assistance in making the podcast possible. Dr. James Hatch, co-author with the late Errol Hill of A History of African American Theater, Connie Winston, Anthony Hill, and Doug Barnett, co-authors of the Historical Dictionary of African American Theater, and Joby Sprinkle and Tina Simmons, at radio station WFAE in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited 
please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Thank you.